Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us, and we believe that helps us draw more power out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I'm happy to have back with me my good friend, uh, colleague, former roommate, whatever you want to, former high school mate, whatever you want to call him, Dr. Dan Belknap, uh, who you've already heard from once and you'll hear from later uh, and ironically, that was actually the first one recorded. So that's the longest introduction. You'll get to that later when we do Hebrews. Uh, but anyway, uh, let me just tell you a little bit. If you haven't heard, you should go back and listen to the uh, the episode on the second half of Romans with Dr. Belknap. But uh, he did his uh, bachelor's in Near Eastern Studies at BYU and then went to the University of Chicago and got his Ph.D. there uh, and has been teaching at BYU basically ever since and is just a, a great uh, colleague and friend. So welcome, Dan. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be back. And I should say he has a wonderful wife and wonderful children. So we should put that in there. Aaron, uh, I should say that uh, as Julianne is a saint for putting up with me, Aaron is a saint for putting up with Dan. So, Oh, no question. It was a yeah. full Mary up. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, today we are doing Second uh, Corinthians. So we're we finished the first letter and we're into the second letter and a bunch of stuff happens in between. But anyway, we've got Second Corinthians chapter one through seven. So uh, why don't you just tell us where you'd like to go in there? Well, um, I don't know. And I apologize if the light is such and the, the room where I'm stuck in has the light coming in and through the windows the whole time. So go it makes you look down, radiant. That's but, what that's what I'm hoping for. Angelic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Second Corinthians. So one of the the first element of it that maybe we talk about a little bit is its is its context, or if we can, as best as we can, its placement and its dating relationship with First Corinthians, right? Yeah. So it's clear that it's written after First Corinthians, and um, yeah, he references the other letter in this right, letter. Right. Well, that's the interesting thing. Some scholars will suggest that there was another letter in between First and Second Corinthians. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a letter because, before first Corinthians. So it clearly is, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So and then the, the, maybe there's even a third. And so so there's a way in which they do some source critical analysis of this book that I think makes it a little bit more complex than it needs to be. Um, as to that letter, supposedly in between, that's from chapter two, where it describes in verse four a letter that he wrote out of much anguish and many tears. So they call it the tearful letter. That's supposedly in between first and second Corinthians. But what I want to suggest, uh, at least the way that I read it, is that I can see this as that's actually in reference to first Corinthians as well. So, yeah, first Corinthians certainly could fit that bill, right? He's he's got easily. some things. I mean, he sounds like Jacob in that letter, like, I'd rather not talk to you about this stuff, but here we go. It's tough that's to exactly talk to right. my friends about the things they're doing wrong. So, it, to me, that fits perfectly with it. It doesn't mean I, I there so might too. not be something else, but it. There's no reason for something else because First Corinthians fits that really well. Right. Well, and the argument that they make is because he says I wrote this um, um, somewhat kind of harsh letter. I, that's exactly how I read First Corinthians. That is not <laughs> yeah. a happy letter, and he's pretty no. harsh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I have no problem with um, the supposed third letter is actually it's it's first corinthians so so that's the way i'm going to read it and and hopefully you're good with that that second corinthians yeah. is a direct result of first corinthians or a response yeah. to and even if there's another letter i think it still would include right. first corinthians it doesn't change the way i read this i think it's at least partially if not fully referring to first corinthians it doesn't really change it much for no me. and in fact as you look in some of the chapters to your point 
there's a whole bunch of language that's used that's straight out of first Corinthians. It, it's yeah. just, he knows the letter and he seems to be referring back to it, right? Yeah. Stuff like seeing through a glass and that's, that's straight out of the discussion of first Corinthians on charity. So yeah. I just, if there was, if there was a letter, it's a repeat of the material that he just said. So, so with that, I guess that's where I kind of want to begin is Corinthians, Corinthians, if we read second Corinthians, then as a result of first Corinthians, it's going to be a response to, and ends up telling us then why he wrote first Corinthians in the first place, which I know sounds obvious since we all read first Corinthians already, but now we get some insight into the actual writing of the letter itself, really yeah. beginning in chapter two. And I think, I think that's worth noticing, right? But I want to begin um, back here in chapter one, first of all, with a, another little interesting, intriguing, and completely vague, and ambiguous historical context, right? Yeah, yeah. So if we look down here in chapter one, um, he begins in his normal epistolary intro. Hey, everybody, how are you doing? We're thinking about you. We're praying about you. I hope you're, hope you're doing well in terms of our sufferings. And then in verse eight, he brings up here, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which yeah. came to us in Asia, right? Yeah. S something's happened to Paul, and we don't know what it is. Is this and people try to match it up with somewhere in Acts, whether it's a, he's in prison or whether this is a, the shipwreck or whatever. And we have the faintest idea, but yeah. clearly Paul's run into some problem in, in Asia Minor, somewhere in Turkey. Yeah. Right. And in fact, maybe, maybe I can just say, uh, I mean, uh, for many of these uh, letters, I try and do a little overview, but I think what we're doing can serve as the overview. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll just throw another yeah. element in here, which is that, uh, uh, you really get a sense, and and uh, I I didn't come up with this. N.T. Wright in his uh, biography of Paul, Paul biography, uh, he's he states this I think even more strongly than I would have. But he states you get the sense that whatever has happened, uh, and it may be a combination of things. They had some kind of trouble, and he's probably heard that some people didn't receive his letter in First Corinthians very well or whatever. But Paul seems a bit different here. This is this is the beaten down Paul. This is, I mean, not the beaten down and giving up, but this is the Paul who's like, man, this has been tough. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I, I think you do get a sense in there that uh, whatever's gone on, uh, especially when he starts talking about, you know, I don't want to make you sad, so I'm not coming. Uh, Paul's been through some tough things in between First and Second Corinthians, and I think we only have a hint of what it is, and this is one of those hints. Right. Yeah, and I agree. And so it's it's unclear what's happened, but something's happened. And and to your point, what you just kind of alluded to right there, it's possible that one of the purposes behind these letters, clearly he's got a much bigger purpose as we'll get into. But one yeah. of the letters is congregations might have heard things about what's happened to Paul, right? I, yeah. I have to assume the rumor mill in the early Christian church is as yeah. alive and well as it is in any other society. Yeah. And if that's the case, they're hearing things, they're hearing reports. It's not a part of our reading, but the second half of, of Second Corinthians, really beginning in about chapter 10, he's going to talk about false apostles, and he's going to talk about other individuals that have arisen who are preaching or saying things that go counter to, to Paul and the other church leaders, right? Yeah. So I think I think part of this is, um, and you, can, you can kind of see the same thing in the writings of Peter and James and John later in the New Testament. They all know that there are other individuals out there that are counter- countervailing or counteracting against the apostles chosen by Christ. Yeah. And so to your, to your point, if, if Paul is 
the sense of beaten down, I wonder if it's coming from two parts, right? So right. there's there's what he's experiencing here, which who knows, could be connected. This could be somehow related back to that thorn in his side that he's going to talk about, right? This yeah. He's got something going on personally. He's got something going on. It seems to be interacting with another community that's gotten him in trouble. And then you have all these false apostles of which yeah. by chapter 10, he's got to make the argument as to how he's a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And so, so I think there's just a sense that there's a lot, there's a lot that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And at least some, I think you're, you're right. We have these hints elsewhere of the, the like some kind of personal suffering, physical, emotional, I don't know what, Whatever um, that is. but verse eight seems to be something that happens to a group of them. Yep. Right. Yep. With like we, and it's, it's pretty touching. He's talking about we, and he says, we were pressed out of measure, above strength, in so much that we despaired even of life. Yep. Uh, that, so that's, I, I wish we knew what that was, but that, there's something tough has happened. Well, and I can't, I'm blanking now, have, the way that you just, well, the way that it just got read there, it's seven and eight and nine. Um, there's, a, there's another letter, and maybe you can help me with it, but where Paul's going to basically say, I'm torn. I'm really torn. I'm ready to go but you guys aren't ready to let me go. And yeah. I need to stay as long as I can for you, but guys, I'm torn. I'm ready to go. And when we get into, when we get into Timothy, he'll say, I'm done. I fought the good fight. I'm, I'm ready. Right. So, and, and you get this sense that he feels pressed to go back to Jerusalem and then pressed mm -hmm. to go to Rome. Yep. But uh, there are so many people who need his help that he's having, and he's trying to collect all this money for yep. people in Jerusalem that he's having a hard time doing everything that he feels he needs to do and yes. take care of everyone he needs to take care of. Which, and we often, which, we all feel that way at times. Yeah. And what this, I think it is, is gives us also insight into probably how the rest of the 12 felt. I mean, Paul's oh, yeah. not the only one doing these journeys, right? Yeah. And so we've got, I mean, chapter two, for instance, we'll find out that he's, he was looking forward to seeing Titus and miss Titus somewhere in these journeys. And, and he's with Timothy and, right apollos and other yeah. letters and sending and we, out we get record individuals. peter had been there and mm -hmm. uh we know peter's gonna end up in rome so yeah that, right. i mean this is going on all over and we know john at some point is moving around so which yeah. by, which takes me to uh if we can just because we'll we'll jump around a bit takes me to an actual theme that i see across john peter and paul james mm -hmm. to some degree but james gives some very practical more practical advice but it actually picks and up. And he seems here. fairly centered in Jerusalem. But anyway, yes. yeah. Yeah. Right. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, let's look here in verse 21 and 22. Okay. Now, talking about this, so if chapter 1 sets up, listen, I, I don't want you ignorant of what's happened. This is what's been going on, but we're we're okay. We've survived and we're thinking about you. And we're kind of thinking about you in terms of this, uh, it, maybe even all the way back to verse 20, the promises of God, right? For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him. Amen. This is talking about Jesus Christ. We have these promises that have been given to us that are made possible through Christ. And then he describes it this way. Now, he which establisheth, establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, and who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, he's going to talk about this earnest elsewhere, right? Ephesians is going to talk about the earnest in chapter one, but he's also going to talk about this earnest, oh, where is it? I want to say it's chapter four, chapter five of this letter. An earnest is a down payment, right? This is an economic term that he uses to describe the, and down payment is not even the right word because 
but it's the idea that God has given you something that guarantees a future event, right? Or a future thing. And in this case, then if he, he he's going to call it a sealing, right? He's sealed this unto us. He's anointed us and sealed us. John uses the same language in John, uh, the first letter of John. And, and he's going to do it again in Ephesians. Peter's going to talk about a sealing, but this idea of an earnest, that there's, there's a down payment that's been given to us for our future promise that is given. I just got done teaching First uh, and Second Peter to my uh, students last week, and First Peter talk, talks about this incredible promise that we have of an imperishable, uh, indestructible, always present, immortal inheritance. Right? There's an element of this where Paul wants his individual. He looks for this. So even with all the the um, turmoil that he might be going through, he's looking forward to a promise that's been given to him. And that promise is this inheritance that's given to him through the Holy Ghost. So, and, and telling the saints, same deal. We have this, we have an earnest that is given to us. So there's And you're, no, you're right. It's it's fully an economic term that that we used to call earnest money. Now we call it down payment, but mm-hmm. it's it it really is like, okay, I've given you this in as a taste of and in promise of what I will give you in the future. And that's a that's a beautiful thought. It is a beautiful thought. It, Christ doesn't use the word earnest in his Last Supper discourse, but the idea that, um, right, a peace I give unto you, that's not yeah. like the world, but a peace that I give unto you, which is my peace that I give unto you. In fact, the whole Last Supper is a series of him giving a bunch of things, giving you the promise of the Holy Ghost, I'm going to give you peace. These are the these are the earnest. And for, yeah. for Paul's going to make this argument, he really is going to develop it in Ephesians more than anything else, where we actually get a couple of apostolic blessings. But here, he's already hinting at it. These troubles, these trials, what I need the saints to do is see from a larger perspective, right? Yeah. And and in fact, that, uh, let's see if we can, if I can find it here, just off the top of my head. If we go to chapter, if we go to chapter three, I think it's where I want to go with that. Um, he's going to talk about this. Well, yeah. So he talks about the the truth that we have, thanks to Christ. If you look down here in verse 12, he says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech and not like Moses did. Now he's going to compare. And this is this is an allusion to an event that Moses had as he comes down off the mountain. He's glowing. They have to veil his face because he's so filled by the, the glory and presence of God, which they can't handle. He says, that's not what we're here for. That's not our experience. We're we're not going to come as Moses. We're going to speak in plainness, face to face to each other, right? Even unto this day, verse fifteen, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. That the Jews, nevertheless, when it shall be when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I like this idea. This is again something that Paul's going to come back to and talk about in other letters, um, and did in First Corinthians where the meat issue that you saw back in, what is it, chapter eight, nine, uh, he talks about the liberty that Christians have. Paul, uh, Peter will talk about a freedom that the Christians have. In this case, the spirit brings about a liberty, but we all with open face, beholding as it in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory. He's looking forward to something else, something that they know more. And so with all the trial and tribulation that bogs them down from day to day, Paul's looking forward to going, but we know more. We don't have this veil. We've got a we've got an earnest, a down payment to our inheritance, right? Right. 
So, so and just again, because it's on my mind, Peter will describe it this way. Do you have the ability to see good days? And I love that idea. Not have a good day. Do you see a good day? And, and both Paul and Peter are going to talk about, do you, can you see from an eternal perspective? Do you see, as Peter will call it, afar off, right? Or Paul just from an eternal God-like perspective, do you see? Right. Or Alma might put it with an eye of faith. With an eye right. of faith. Do you see these things, right? That's yeah. exactly what Alma would say. Do you see your, do you see your mortal body putting on immortality? This idea, do you, do you see it? What, one of the, one of the cool things about Alma 5 is that verse is immediately followed by him saying, can you imagine unto yourselves, yeah. right? As weird yeah. as it sounds, imagination, we think, plays a role in exercising a faith. Do you see it? Can you imagine it? Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's important. Right. Joseph Smith talked about, can you, do you, does your mind expand to the utmost heavens? Does it plumb the very depths? Right. There's, there's an element of um, spiritual imagination that we need to engage in as saints in recognizing the hope and promises that have been ours, our earnest. How often do we actually think about the implications of that earnest that we've received? Yeah. That, that the, the peace that we've felt, I mean, I, I think what he's trying to say is, Think of those moments when the Spirit has been with you and you feel love, you feel peace, you feel joy. That's just a down payment on what you're going yep. to get, right? That's the 5%. So multiply that by 95 and you know what it's going to be like yeah. in, in the hereafter. And you have to remember that as you're going through the sorrow that Paul is going through. That's exactly right. Second Corinthians 4 verse 18, this is how he ends it, right? While we look not at the things which are seen, what is the things which are not seen, right? I just, do you see it? Do you see afar off? Do you see whatever it is, right? Jacob Jacob will, in chapter four, talk about us obtaining a resurrection, a specific resurrection. We all get resurrected. But the question is, is, are we working for a particular resurrection? And having said that and becoming the first fruits of that resurrection, it's almost as Jacob pulls aside and says, now, listen, don't, um, don't marvel that I speak of these things, for why not speak of a, and obtaining a perfect knowledge of Christ as well as the knowledge of the resurrection, which is to come. It's, yeah. He's just thinking, you've got these incredible highest denominators that we can talk about thanks to Christ's atonement and what Christ makes possible. Why not talk about that? Right. Yeah. Instead of just going, uh, I'll just stay down here at this basic level. It's I use this a lot, but this to me is that it's the Elder Uchtdorf parable of the of the cruise ship. Yeah. Right. It's there's more. We have more. We have more available to us. And I don't think we take advantage of that. And in this day and age, particularly, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's like for you in your classes or maybe even with your kids. There's so much information. It's so much yeah. in front of them that there's there's and it's coming out fast that the ability to organize make sense of or put it aside critical thinking just take a couple of seconds right social media rewards emotional visceral immediate response That's it exactly rewards right. you for it and, and instead of looking at big picture vistas right it's the forest instead yep. of the trees yep. kind of, i mean the trees seeing the trees instead of the forest kind of right. a thing and and if you didn't know that I, I mean, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I'd feel anxious about it too, yeah. right? It would be, it would be overwhelming to just have that much. I, I don't know exactly everything about your life, Carrie, but you and I come from the same basic generation, right? Oh yeah. We had landlines, 
<laughs> yeah. and we had the 30 to 40 foot cords that could stretch from room to room for that very purpose yeah right? and twist it around and stuff yeah if i couldn't reach a friend nah, i couldn't reach a friend that night that's how that worked that's just things were a little bit slower which allowed you to process data and information and things right yeah and if, and learn some patience and look for a big picture yeah right so for instance if you and i were invited to a party and or I didn't get the invitation to the party. I wouldn't know that for days. Yeah, that's true. Right. All, all that type of stress of interpersonal relationships and just data and raw stories and just coming in. It's it's exhausting. And, and so I think I think this this ability to see afar off or or as Paul will say here to see the things which are eternal. Right. right? That's that verse 18 of chapter four. That's not an ideal anymore. I actually think it might be absolutely necessary necessary to spiritual survival in this day and age. I agree. And maybe I can just say two things about that. I mean, one, in all time periods, people have had a struggle sometimes not looking at the big picture and, and you know, delayed gratification, that kind of a thing, that, that myopic views. But I think it's for some of the reasons you've said and even more, uh, even increasing right now, it is so hard sometimes to stop and look at the big picture mm -hmm. because there's too much in front of you in the little picture, but we, and I see all sorts of students. I have to work with students uh, and a little bit with youth and so on, but uh, to say, okay, I know this is tough right now, but if you can do this, look at where it gets you, right? So go through the pain right now, go through the hard thing right now to get to what you're trying to, to reach, but too often they can't see past the immediate difficulty they're in right yep. now. Right. Yep. And and to some degree that comes. It's, it's interesting. Just this morning, I had this feeling that there was a conference talk I need to listen to. So I listened to the talk in this last um, April 2023 general conference by President Ballard about the things that matter most and about mm -hmm. not getting distracted by the things that don't matter and and forgetting the things that matter most. And he said the things that matter most are those which last. And he said the most important thing is your relationship with God, yep. which music to my ears as I've been teaching about that the covenant is about relationships, right? And he said your relationship with God or with Christ and then with your family and with others. Uh, don't lose sight of making those things your top priority because the rewards for those things are eternal. They're mm -hmm. the things that last. And yep. I think that's the same thing that Paul is trying to tell us here. Yep, I do. I, I think this is the message. I think it's across all dispensations, but I yeah. find it in some ways, Paul, Peter, James, the other leaders of the church, they all know what's coming, yep. right? We're beginning to see prophecies concerning apostasy. We, they know something's coming and they know this is going to last forever. They, it's almost like they can see the the cloud the cloud bank in the distance, and so trying to get the saints to go. Okay, you need to see from this larger picture. You need to have it. There's a there's a similarity between our dispensation and the one that they're going through right in here, right in yeah, the New Testament. Yeah. And and this to me is one of them. In in some ways, more than the Old Testament. As much as I love the Old Testament, more than the Book of Mormon. There really is an emphasis on you have got to have a larger perspective. You have, and, and not just it would be nice to have it. It's you've got to have it. You have yeah. got to have it or we're going to fall. Yeah. Although I think that uh, Moroni, excuse me, Moroni is pretty strong oh. on that as well. But yes, he is. Certainly but I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Mormon chapters eight and nine, those aren't happy. And, yeah. uh, and then his final one, Mormon 10, it's happier, same message. 
Yeah, but it's still, yeah, look at where this is going. Yeah, like you said, you've got to see the pollutions among you. You've got to see these for what yeah. you are. you got to look at this big picture. But yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to take away. You're absolutely right. I think everyone has taught it, but these guys are really hitting it. Yep. Yep. And again, I don't know, to, to back to our original point, is that simply because it's on Paul's mind because he's going through all of this personal stuff on his own or, or going through stuff? I don't know. But it's clear that this is his message and it's John's message and it's Peter's message. Yeah. And so so it's just this, again, to all of that in chapter four, verse 13, while or 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen. Are eternal right mm. and and i just i love this and, and the way it was going to relate to the definition of faith that you find in hebrews there's if the writer of hebrews isn't paul which is fine again i'm struck by uh how much cohesion there is in the actual messages across the different authors of the of the of the of the new testament of these letters right yeah, the epistles this, yeah this is the theme that peter's going to mention this is the theme that these others are going to do it's just it is what it is. Yeah. Well, good. Now, with that then, so that's one of the messages he delivers to this. And I think that fits within the context of, of another major theme of at least the first few chapters of Corinthians. So if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 now, now we can pick up Paul, um, Paul talking about the writing of what I think the writing of the first letter, 1 Corinthians. So chapter two, but I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. So now we begin to see these, I, I would love to come see you again. I would, uh, that would be awesome. We don't know whether or not he is able to get back to Corinth. We don't see him necessarily responding to that, but we know that he'd like to. Yeah. And in fact, even in the verse 23 of the previous chapter, he said, uh, to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. So it right. seems like he, he wants to, but because of what he's talking about in verse one there, uh, he hasn't come yet, but but it's it's in his plan and he would like to. Right. And in fact, I read that as, as part of that being, I wrote you that first letter. Now, I could have come and said it to you in person, but I spared you that. I wrote you the letter. Let's see how you did with the letter. But that will show up more in chapter seven, where he describes again more about the writing of that first letter. So here in chapter two, so this letter, I, I didn't want to come to you in heaviness. I didn't want to have to do that. I think that's an intriguing admission on the part of Paul. We think of Paul, we read some of his letters, we read some of the stories and acts, and this is a very strong-willed individual, right? Yeah. He doesn't oh, yeah. take a, he doesn't take a lot of guff. The stories of where he made people march him out of the city after doing him wrong, all of these yeah. things. Paul is a strong-willed individual. But nobody likes admonishing anybody. Nobody yeah. likes doing it. No. And, and and this this is a place where the, you begin to see the same thing that you see, for instance, in the Old Testament, when Jeremiah writes and says, "I didn't want to have to deliver that message." Yeah, I'm tired of that message. I I curse the day I was born. Yep. Right? And These, Jacob and Mormon. I mean, you get a bunch of them that are this way. Right. I don't want to have to do this. I, I don't. This isn't what I enjoy doing. I remember. I remember a talk by. Um, so President Hinckley or President Monson, it was in a priesthood session and, and he stood up and he said, I don't really want to have to say this, but, and then gave a talk on 
to the priesthood, stop abusing your wives. Yeah, that was President Hinckley. I remember it that. It was President yeah. Hinckley. And you almost got the sense of he wanted to be able to give a good report back to the Lord, but that wasn't an option. So he had to call us on it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is, they don't like doing it. But to that extent, this becomes an example of what President Kimball once said, in which he said, prophets aren't here to tell you what they what you want to hear. They're here to tell you what you need to hear. Yeah. And we could just even change that to say they're not here to tell you what they want to tell you. <laughs> no, they <laughs> they're, don't. They're here to tell you what they have to tell you. I remember, um, just because now we're telling stories, I don't know if you were in that class, and I just apologize to all your listeners. There's, Carrie and I have a small history of back and forth, but um, took a Hebrew class back at BYU. And I think this is before Jerusalem, but I can't remember. Um, but it was right after a devotional. So it must, it, it would have, it would have done at noon. And I want to say Aaron Shade might've been in the class or something, but we got back, we got into the Hebrew class after the devotional and the instructor, and I really can't remember who it was. It's one of three people. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> but, and so I think I know which one it was, but anyway, the individual said, so what do you guys think of that devotional? Oh, that was great. That was that was incredible because President Hinckley had come and spoken, right? And I think yeah. he was in the first presidency at the time, but President Hinckley had spoken on the honor code of BYU. And it was just, oh, it was incredible. That was a great, great discourse. Really good stuff. To which the professor went, yeah, no, I agree. I thought it was really good. Did you find it at all slightly disappointing that of all the things that he could have spoken about, he decided to talk to you about the honor code? And we went, what? what? He's, you already signed it. You already voluntarily signed to that thing. Of all the things that a member of the first presidency could have spoken about, he thought you needed to hear about the honor code. What do you think about that? Hmm. That was that was uh, eye-opening is what it yeah. was. A little sobering. Because yeah. it was a great devotional. But you did walk away going, hmm, of all the things you could have talked about, yeah. that's what you felt you had to talk about. Yeah. That, that'll be nice. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later because Paul is going to talk about the change that the Corinthians engage in, or at least are engaging in, and connecting it back to something that God himself experiences, right? Yeah. That there's a yeah. relationship there between their decisions to change and what God himself experiences. So I'll, I want to talk to you about that. I want to get your thoughts on, on that when we get there. But back here in chapter two, so here he didn't want to write that. He didn't want to write the letter. I, I I didn't want to have to come visit you and be the rebuking apostle. Instead, as he says, for if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which made me sorry? So we get the idea here that he wrote the letter, hoping that it would bring them all to a state of repentance, because they'd be the same ones that make him glad. He wants to go to Corinth. Clearly, he's got a relationship with the church in Corinth, and they're good friends. He didn't want to have to write the letter and and deal with those issues he wants to come with them and be friends so i wrote the letter in such a manner that if you were sorry for it you'll also make me glad right i, I was i was heartbroken that i had to write that letter but in so doing it made me think that you guys might be able to change and therefore i'd be glad when i come visit you so yeah. i wrote the same unto you lest when i came i should have sorrow from them whom i ought to rejoice Again, the, the principle here is beautiful in terms of change and transfer. Why he wrote the letter? I want the people of Corinth to change, and we'll talk. We'll talk uh, at least what I think might have been the problem in Corinth. But I wanted you to change. But I wanted to come visit you in joy. And I and I, every time I read this, I think 
obviously I'm not an apostle. I'm not a general authority of the church. I would think that this is what they find great pleasure in, is when they get to interact with the saints on a joyful level. Yeah. Right? To say, wow, you guys are doing well. Right. And I wonder, I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I wonder if sometimes they're in their meetings, they have this result. Okay, who's going to go visit this congregation or this stake or this group yeah. of stakes? These are the problems, uh, but these are doing great over here. So, oh, can I get, I'll take them. Yeah. I have no idea if they do it that way. But the idea here that Paul is, I want to have a great experience with you. I want to do that. I want to have fun. I want to talk about the great stuff of the gospel. That's what I want. And so I wrote the letter, hoping that it will lead you to change, so that when I do come among you, that is exactly what I can do. Right? Yeah. I wonder, I sometimes wonder based on that, what would conference be like, or state conferences, or or devotionals, if we were all doing exactly what we needed to do, so they could come and do what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, and and not have, I mean, sometimes we were like, wow, they're talking about that topic again. Mm-hmm. Well, that's our own fault, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they'd be happy to move on to, to lesson two if we could just get lesson one down. Right, right. I mean, I think, I think of one of the more basic ones that President Nelson's been talking about, which is so necessary and so essential, and yet at the same time, kind of sad. And what I mean by that is when he emphasizes, you need to know that you really are children of God right? Yep. That's that's a basic fundamental truth. At least it should be, at least according to Paul in Romans, it's one of the things the Spirit's going to testify to you of, that you are children of God, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just, for me, it is heartbreaking to know that the world just tears down individuals, that they lose that truth. Yes. Well, and it's it's integrally tied to another message I think President Nelson would be happy to quit giving that Paul I think would be happy to quit giving, which is quit having contention. Yep. Yep. Be, be united, right? Yeah. Yep. I, I I think President Nelson wants to teach us how to move forward, but he has at least a couple of times had to stop or and tell us this is you got to quit moving backwards yes. on this issue. And Paul hits that same issue again and again as well. And it comes right back to that first theme that we explored. If you don't have an eternal perspective, if you cannot see a far off, if you do not have these things, then it just kind of all falls apart. Yeah. Right? Pe- again, fact, oh, go for it. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, Second Peter chapter 1 outlines a set of characteristics, faith, temperance, charity, godliness, all of these things, which lead you to, as he says, abounding, not, right, if you lack them, you're not abounding, but abounding in the in the uh in the spirit in the fruit of the lord in, the, yeah. in this these will allow you to see from this eternal perspective but we don't put them into practice on our daily life so when 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 peter and paul both talk about this eternal perspective it is not contrasted with but balanced with the ability to get through a, a given day to day or as peter would say to see a good day is balanced by the ability to see afar off right i think both of those are off right I think I don't think we've learned. I don't think we've learned how to see good days now, and by virtue of that, aren't able to see afar off. That's good. I I don't think that we see, as Paul would say, eternal things, because we're stuck so much in seeing the temporal things. That's good. I, and I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is such an important message. As as you're saying that, it reminds me of uh, something I've just kind of put two and two and two together. Um, 
I know of a time when President Nelson was speaking to a number of stake presidents and and so on. I don't know who else was there, but I think maybe mission president, something anyway. And uh, someone asked him uh, in the question and answer session, how do we help uh, people? We're, we're just having a lot of people who are struggling with pornography. How do we help them? What would your advice be? And his answer was so short and simple. Teach them who they are and what their purpose is. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I've also seen him give almost that identical answer or heard or read him give almost that identical answer uh, to a number of other questions that aren't aren't related at all to pornography about other yeah. things. How do we help people with missionary work? How do we teach them who they are and what their purpose is? And and you suddenly get the idea. Wow. If you keep that eternal perspective, our relationship with God and where he wants to bring us, if you keep that in mind. It makes everything else work out in a different way. And it reminds me of his talk where he talked about, you know, saying that I think it was a granddaughter-in-law just saying, well, myopic. Yep. Right. Yes. Uh, Yep. uh, Just stop seeing the small stuff around you and see the big stuff. And all that small stuff changes in the way you interact with that small stuff. If you think of your relationship with God and others, the way you interact with others, the contention just goes away uh, and so on and so on. Right. Oh, no, you're exactly right. In fact, um, building off of that, and we're going slightly off track now. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, you're good. In, when, when um, According to Joseph Smith Matthew, when Christ, when the disciples ask their questions, what should we look for, for the signs of the times and the, the destruction yeah. of the temple and all of that, uh, that all of that discourse somewhere during the last week of Christ's ministry, his, his response is intriguing. He doesn't go into a description <laughs> straight of earthquakes those are secondary the first thing he says is take heed lest any man deceive you and what that suggests is of all the things that he has that he needs to say and teach one of the last things is is you've got to be able to discern you've got to be able to discern between between uh things as they really are to use language from jacob which gets contrasted with the things the way things seem to be right? They're the way things are, and they're the way things seem to be. And oftentimes, we're good at being able to distinguish them, but sometimes we're not. And according to Jacob, you need the Spirit to do that. And what strikes me about that is, as Christ continues to develop that in in Joseph Smith Matthew, he'll say, take heed lest any man deceive you, and then explains how a bunch of people are going to misuse his name, which can lead the saints to suffering, not just because they're followers of Christ, but because anyone who claims the title of Christ is going to misuse it and you will suffer for that. And then he says, and then shall many be offended. And offended is, that word means to stumble or trip. Paul used it back in 1 Corinthians to strike this, that many can be offended by these things, to stumble or trip. We use the word for a particular set of behaviors that individuals enact in which they uh, provoke or instill or bring out negative things against you and I, right? Right. Well, in class, I always give them a, a small little quiz about something important about this. I go, how many of you have been offended? We all raise our hands. Right. And then the second question will be, how many of you have offended? Hands all go up. I go, third question, though. To those of you who have offended someone else, did you did you mean to offend? Right? I mean, how many of you really mean to offend someone? And no hands go up. They go, so, so you didn't mean to offend. Yep, I didn't mean to offend. And I go, if that's true, then what are the odds of the person who offended you? I mean, what are the odds? If all of you recognize that you didn't mean to be offensive, then what are the odds of the person who offended you? That's and the good. odds are high then that they wouldn't have been. And even, even to those few rare cases where someone is offensive, 
If in fact the word means to stumble or trip or fall, it doesn't mean just because the rocks in the middle of the road that you have to trip over. And yet we often end up reacting to these things because that's the way things seem. They're incomplete. There's, there's no way looking from a temporal perspective that you have the full picture. There's just no way. And yet we keep reacting as if that's the full picture. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, so much division, so much contention, so much strife. The very stuff that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that was plaguing the Corinthian church, that type of stuff is because they lack the ability to discern. They lack the the ability to distinguish between the way things are versus the way they seem to be, which honestly requires the spirit. And which is what he says in chapter two, your conversion never came through the spirit. I came and taught you plainly as I could, but it never, it never connected. You, you never got it in your heart so much so that while I fed you milk, chapter three of first Corinthians, you're still having to take the milk. That shouldn't be, you should have matured spiritually beyond that. But you're yet carnal man, he says, there's strifes, there's divisions. All of that, I think, arises from an inability to recognize between the way things are versus the way they seem to be, which is why Christ put it in as the very first thing his disciples needed to be on the lookout for. That's so cool. so I think I think there's an element of that in, in what we're seeing today, to your point with President Nelson and the other leaders who tell us about these crucial first principles that we all should know what I mean. If you know that you're a child of God, then you can know that someone else is a child of God. And doesn't that just change the way you would act around them? I mean, if you knew who they really were, which is what I think charity is, if you really, if you knew who someone really was, how in the world could you ever be offended by that individual? Uh, that's that's true. That's right. Right. Now, and, and this leads to an idea that I call the asymmetrical nature of the gospel, and meaning charity isn't based on reciprocity. I don't have charity if you have charity, right? right. It's asymmetrical. I have charity because that's what's been revealed to me. If you never know that about me, that has no bearing on my knowing it about you at all. Right. right. And yet I think that's what makes charity so hard while you have to pray with all the energy of heart to receive it. That's, <laughs> that isn't that asymmetry in terms of relationship, right? That's that's fundamental. Zion only works that way. There's so many things that are asymmetrical, which the Lord says, I don't really care if anybody else has those characteristics. I ask that you have them. That's and, good. And yet we're so caught up in a reciprocal, immediate, visceral comparison, contrasting with others, that these basic principles, are you a child of God? Are you the house of Israel? These types of things. What is your purpose here? We're still having to come back and discuss because we haven't grasped them. To hear the rest of our conversation together, stay tuned or tune in to part two.